Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Hello everyone, it's your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Today we've got a fascinating episode. Zander von der Poel is going to tell us about his life-changing story. Zander is also a fellow Bristol medical student. Zander started three years ago and at the end of his first year he fell out of a tree, breaking his back and leaving him paralysed from the waist down. After four months in hospital, he was discharged and decided to suspend his studies to learn how to navigate his new life in a wheelchair. During his year out, Zander discovered the world of wheelchair racing and began training to pursue a new career in parasport. Following a successful first competition at the South African Nationals, he was invited to train in America with the USA Paralympic team at the University of Illinois. In 2019, Zander returned for his second year at med school to tackle the challenge of balancing medicine and following a career in successful sport. He's currently training with the GB Rowing Talent ID squad with the hopes of one day competing in the Paralympics. He also runs a blog on Instagram, Six Weeks in Bed, where he documents his journey and talks about his recovery, sport and disability in medicine. So let's welcome the wonderful Zander. So, hey Zander, thanks so much for joining me on today's episode of the podcast. So nice to have a fellow Bristol Med student on board. So, how are you doing? Uh, I'm not too bad, thanks, Ali. Yourself? Yeah, not bad. Um, getting ready to go back to final year. And what year are you starting? Uh, I'm starting my third year now. So you're getting excited for clinical, are you excited for the change of kind of scenery from lecture theatres to operating theatres? No, I'm really, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, just getting, getting a bit more hands-on um, and uh, yeah, actually just sort of having a reminder of why, why we've, uh, why I've embarked on this long, long journey. Very long journey, I can attest to that. I'm right at the end and I'm, I'm kind of ready to just start, you know, getting a salary and living a normal life. <laughs> Can't be a student for much longer. Um, so tell us, Sander, a little bit about your background. Introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, so my name is Sander and I'm, um, I'm South African. Uh, I was born in Johannesburg and we moved over to England when I was uh, two years old. Um, I grew up in the Midlands, uh, in the UK, um, and I went to school in Stratford. Uh, and since a young age, being a South African, I've, I've, uh, I've, always, I've always been a keen rugby player. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was, uh, I've always been a, a pretty keen rugby player, played for my school's first 15. Um, 
year 13 applied for med school um, for both Sheffield and Bristol um, and a, f- a few others but those I got into those two and it was a and it was a big a big decision trying to figure out which one to go to but obviously uh, Bristol ended up being the one and uh, and in 20, 2018 uh, 2017 2017 uh, I, uh, yeah I, I joined Bristol Medical School and uh, had my first had my first year there um, and I paid for the I paid for the university medics rugby team as well, um, and carried on carried on with that, and uh, yeah, and it's it's been it's been great. Amazing and big up South Africa. My whole family are from Joburg too. So not only Bristol med student but a fellow South African. So that's wonderful. So um, we're going to dive straight in. Um, we've got a very interesting episode for you guys today. Um, you're going to tell us a little bit about your story. And so I just wanted you to start off by telling our listeners a bit about what happened to you towards the end of first year and where you're at kind of now. So um, at the end of my first year, um, I came back home to Warwickshire to have, uh, to just, yeah, for study, study leave um, and to... Um, to revise, yeah, to revise for, uh, yeah, for first year exams. Um, and mum's home and, cooking, <laughs> a bit of TLC. <laughs> and, yeah, no, I was, uh, I was catered, uh, but I didn't, I did not enjoy the food. So it was nice, it was nice to get some, uh, to get some home cooking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so I was, uh, so I came back home and, um, yeah, and one one day I decided like I just wanted to take a break. Uh, it gets a bit, you know, you know, when it gets to crunch time, you're just working constantly, and it's nice, it's nice to give it a break. And uh, so I went, I went for a walk in the park with my dog, and uh, there was a tree that I've climbed since I was a kid because you, you like, you know, as, as like South Africans, we we, uh, we don't we don't like to sit indoors. We like to be outside and always climbing climbing trees and getting into trouble. But anyway, so I climbed this tree, um, and I've. I've climbed this tree since I was five years old. It was it used to be like me and my best friend's little place, and we we'd climb the tree and spend all day there. But anyway, so I I, uh, I saw it and I, I thought I'd have a little uh, little reminder of what it was like, and I actually got to about three meters up and was just looking around, and um, on my way back down, my uh, my foot slipped and I fell three meters uh, and landed landed with my back straight onto a root. Um, and as soon as I hit the floor, I uh, I realised that something was wrong. Um, mm-hmm. I've I've had uh, yeah I've had my fair share of falls and and A and E trips and uh, but this one this one was a bit different and actually if it just it just as soon as I hit the floor it felt like my legs were still falling so my back mm-hmm. could feel the ground but my legs were like uh, they were still in the air and I opened my eyes and I saw that they weren't mm-hmm. um, and actually in fact my legs were were on the floor and I remember. Uh, just hitting my legs and trying to feel like what, what's what's going on, um, and luckily there was uh, yeah there was someone with me and they they called my mum and the ambulance and uh, I kind of knew straight away um, like I didn't I didn't want to but I kind of knew straight away what happened and when I when I went to when I went to A and E they confirmed that I broke my back um, and I was paralysed from the waist down. Uh, for the medics out there, I, I uh, yeah, I, I had a birth fracture of my my T12 um, T12 vertebrae um, with a complete uh, yeah with a complete spinal cord injury uh, from that point. So um, I, 
happen in about lunchtime. So there's about one fifteen, and I entered. I went into the operating theatre at nine o'clock after um, a CT, MRI, and X-ray. Um, the first I had to put a chest drain in because I'd had a, I'd had a, a pneumothorax. Uh, my lung collapsed, and uh, I was finding it hard to breathe. And basically, everything everything just went mm-hmm. wrong. Uh, and uh, yeah, the whole day was a bit of a blur. Um, I just it was just weird. Anyway, I went into the operating theater at nine, and then they put in some. Uh, they first they took the the bits of the of spine out of my spinal cord, um, and then they uh, they they put in a fixation um, between T ten and L two, um, and I was in there for about six hours. And I came back out, um, and uh, and yeah, and then I woke up. I couldn't feel my legs, and I remember that was the first time that I really quite grasped what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, got, I was lying in bed, and I asked, I asked to be sat up, um, and uh, the nurse came in and said, "No, we, we, we can't do that. Sorry." Um, and I, just, I wasn't, I was like, didn't know why. And they said, "Well, because of what's happened, um, you're not you, the, the the recommended guidelines are that you can't, um, you're not allowed to sit sit up straight, and you have to lie." flat on uh, you have to have flat bed rest for six six weeks straight um and the nurses would come in every three hours or so to turn me um but other than that i wouldn't have i wouldn't be able to leave the hospital bed i wouldn't be able to do it to do anything for the next six weeks and uh yeah so then mm-hmm. it hit me um the emotional pain first and then the physical pain mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah, those those first two weeks, they were rough. I remember I was just, I was literally just living from, from four hours, from every four hours where I can get my, my the, the paracetamol, um, and it was just paracetamol every four hours, mm. uh, which for me didn't, didn't seem bizarre. Um, but anyway, so I, um, yes, yeah, so it was a, it was a, it was a tough, tough time. But that was that's what happened. Sure. Uh, at the start. And what was it like when you first woke up? Um, had you remembered, were you groggy from the anaesthetic and the um, surgery? Like, what did you actually remember from everything? So, uh, at the time, I didn't remember much. Um, mm. Looking back on it, I've started things have started to come back. I remember I came out of the, um, came out of the operating theatre and I just threw up everywhere. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then I went and then fell asleep, I think. And then I just woke up, and then, like I said to you, I, I, I woke up and, and the, like my mum was my mum was there, and I was in a side room, and I was sweaty and um, and hungry, and mm. I, was, I wasn't allowed to eat. I wasn't allowed to eat for two days, mm-hmm. um, or drink or drink water. Yeah, so I was no by mouth for two days, and um, yeah, it was just. I remember like it was just like every single time. Um, Something every single every single time something happened, it was just it was just a huge shock. So I remember, I was my, my the the neurosurgeon who was about to perform my surgery came in bef- just before I had my surgery, and um, he told my mum that what had happened and explained what was what was what was wrong and how the procedure would happen. And I remember seeing like he, he said that your son will probably never walk again. Mm. Um, it's uh, it's one of those things that. You hear it in the stories, and you like when you like see something, and like you see a news article being like person found lying down and they told they never walk, they'll never walk again. But you never really think it's going to be you, mm, mm. and uh, and it's uh, it's 
it's surreal seeing it happen to you and it's almost like a movie mm-hmm. um but um but yeah so seeing my mum and she, she was just in tears um the entire the entire time but she was she was really strong um cool. and she, she stood by me the entire time but it's yeah it was uh it, it's it's very surreal um and just yeah hearing the words like you'll never walk again mm. it's uh it's it's a tough it's a tough bill to swallow and I remember I spent quite a long time dealing with uh, dealing with that, and uh, yeah, and it was it was it was a long time that I dealt that I had to deal with it, and a, a lot of nights just spent crying, um, thinking about all the things that I wouldn't be able to do. I remember when I just had my accident, I was screaming out of pain and just thinking about all the things that. Yeah, I wouldn't go to do. I was like, I just thought I would never be able to be a doctor. Mm. Um, I thought, I basically, just thought my life would be over. Um, and it's a, it's it's a terrifying things that happen. And everyone's trying to reassure you and say, well, it could just be spinal shock. You you never know. But deep down, you kind of know. Um, and uh, and yeah, it, it it takes a while to it takes a while to process it. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so those first six weeks they were they were really mm. tough. But I decided, well, if I'm gonna be if I'm gonna be in this in this bed, I might as well find find something to do because otherwise I'll go crazy. Yeah. And, um. So I I'd, I'd obviously missed my my missed my exams, and I got in contact with the university. Um. And I asked them, well, is there is there a chance that I can still write the exam? And they said, well, and they said, well, you can you can. Um, you have two options. You can either you can we can either send someone to you, um, and you can write it in your hospital bed, uh, or you can take a year out and and rewrite it next year with the next cohort. And I thought, well, that, at that time I was still planning to go back in September. I now know because this happened on the, it does happen in May. Um, that so September is I don't know, about five months later. Mm. And I thought, well, okay, five months. It gives me enough time to. Uh, it gives me enough time to get everything, get everything sorted, and get back to university. Because for me, um, getting back to university, finishing my degree—that's that—that's what life was about at that sure. point. And you sort of, you leave, you leave school and you go into university, and you sort of, you're in, you're in the rat race, and you, you just want to finish. And yeah. uh, life is about getting that done and moving on to the next thing. So it's go to university, it's go to school, go to university, and go to get a job, mm. and all the all that stuff, and it's. And I thought, well, I can't take I can't take a year out now. So anyway, so I, I tried to I tried to get everything done, and I I studied, and even though I was a, I was on all kinds of uh, all kinds of drugs, <laughs> I I just carried carried on making notes and studying, and I actually had a just before my um, just before because I was I was transferred from Coventry Hospital to a specialist spinal unit in Oslo Street, which is just on the border of Wales, in the middle of nowhere, and. Uh, I uh, just before my exam, I had a kidney infection, and it was it just it was awful, and I was stressing, and I thought, well, do you know, what? I'm not going to write the exam because I'll be dead by next week, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, it, and uh, but I managed to get through it. Honestly, it was one of the worst one of the worst feelings in my life. And it was everything was in pain. I was throbbing, and I was still trying to I was still trying to study, but I could stay I could stay awake for about 
four hours a day. Oh my, <laughs> you are honestly the biggest trooper. You just carried on and carried on. Yeah. And and how were um, you doing, how were you actually doing your notes? Because if you were lying flat, tell our listeners a bit about the process and kind of adaptations you had to make to your studying technique. <laughs> So luckily, I mean, all my notes, I've, all my notes and everything was online. So I wasn't. I'm. A, I'm. A, I've, my handwriting is terrible, which is kind of the classic first, doctor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, first hallmark of being a doctor. Um, but no, so my hand. So I was making all my notes online. We found a, just a, like a cheap Chinese knockoff of something probably, but on eBay, and it was like a stand which you can um, you can adjust. So I was looking. So I, I had to lie on my back, but I was looking up whilst typing on this note because it's, it's a stand like it tilts mm. um, and, I, and I put it on either side of either side of my uh, of my waist and just uh, I was rising it was really uncomfortable but I also had these prism glasses that inverted everything to 90 degrees so I'd look up and I'd see you forwards uh, that's so smart it was, it was, it was a <laughs> crazy to get my head around and I, I, I was trying to and I, it, was, it was the greatest fun for the first like two minutes and then <laughs> <laughs> As most then, gadgets yeah. are, the novelty yeah. words off. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, you, and then I just got, and you just, you, you, you like, okay, okay, I, I, I just kind of want to sit up. And that, that frustration of not being able to sit up and move around. I remember, like, just I was wheeled out of hospital in my hospital bed, and I was just looking up at the sky, and it was, it was great. Like, it was, that was four weeks later, and it was really sunny. It was a really sunny summer, mm. and I was just. Sat, I was just lying inside the entire time, but anyway, uh, so I um, so I used so I used that and I wrote and I did my, like I did all my uh, did all my notes on that and I also used it on used it for my exam paper. Um, I actually fell asleep halfway through my my first exam, and uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so I passed. Um, and uh, wow, and it was terrifying because. Because I technically I was no show for the first for the first round I had to do, I had to write the exam and a reset so if I if I failed um, that reset I um, I would have to redo the entire year mm-hmm. um, so that means that I would have to uh, redo I'd have to take a year out most likely redo another year go back go back into first year so there was a lot of there was a lot riding on um, on on me passing this exam but anyway so I passed um, and. Uh, and then, then the rehab started. So as soon as I finished that, as actually the last, the last time I six weeks bed, six weeks bed rest was my final exam. Mm. Um, so it was quite a nice. Uh, it worked out. It worked out quite nicely. Quite nicely with that. And uh, I thought, well, six weeks is over now. I'm like, I'm gonna get in and racing. But no, it was uh, <laughs> six weeks. Six weeks in one day. Uh, they tilted my bed, the backrest of my bed, to ten degrees. And that was that was as far as I could go for that day. And then the next day was twenty degrees, and this the next day after that was thirty degrees. Because um, obviously I've been lying down for so mm. long. If I if they just let me up straight away, um, I probably would have fainted. And uh, and I actually did faint on the second day of being in a wheelchair. Um, mm. But yes, after after seven weeks, I had to I had to get hoisted and picked up like like a. Like a crane, you know, like when they're, when they're not, is it, it's not a crane. What's the, what's the one that, that, that delivers the babies? Oh, uh, yeah, a stalk. Uh, stalk, a stalk, a stalk, yeah. yeah. So I was literally like, I picked up like a stalk <laughs> with one of these voice machines and dropped into a wheelchair. And I was trying yeah. to push myself and I was, and I was, I was quite like, yeah, I was a, I was, I was a prop in rugby. So I was, I've always been a pretty, like a, a pretty big stocky guy. 
I got I got dropped into this wheelchair and I tried to push myself and it was the most tiring thing. I was I was in mm-hmm. it for the, for a whole half an hour before getting getting back into bed. So it was actually only about nine weeks nine weeks later that I was actually able to get around and do my it's like do mm-hmm. my thing. And um, and yeah, so I was in I was so I was I uh, I was in I was in hospital for about fifteen weeks in total. Um, six of those about seven of those weeks I was in bed and then the rest of them I spent in rehab and I thought okay well I'm out on on the final day I thought I get out of hospital now and life's gonna be great but um that was that was when the real like Mm -hmm. the real mental battle kicked in because that was in September I'd already I'd already uh, decided I was gonna take a year out sure and uh and I came back and I came back to I came back home and nothing was really like nothing was particularly accessible. Getting around in a wheelchair, I was given this big NHS standard um, wheelchair, mm. and uh, and getting around everywhere it was heavy and it was tough. And if I wanted to go anywhere, I'd have to ask my parents to drive me. And um, if they were busy, I'd have to get my aunt to drive me. And it was great to spend some time with them, but actually, all of my independence was gone, mm. um, and I was completely reliant on the people around me. And on top of that, I came home and within two days, I'd had I'd had meetings with some new doctors, new social like social workers. And I thought, what kind of twenty-one-year-old has a social worker? Uh, I thought it was just for kids, but and all these things. And I mean, and I, it was just it made me it made me feel disabled. Yeah. And, I, and, and it was the first time that I re- like. I really realised. I mean, I realised before, but it's the first time that I realised that actually, you know what, I'm, I'm disabled, and it hit me hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the first, I mean, when I say it, when it like, it, I had like two or three days where everything just seemed so bleak, mm. and I thought, well, I, have to, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't do it. I can't do this. I need to do something. So um, there was a, I, I'd uh, contacted a girl. Uh, who I knew. She was actually the world uh, the world record holder for the 100 meters in uh, wheelchair racing. Wow. Uh, Carrie Carrie Dennigan. I thought, well, I, I want to I want to do what you do. So I messaged her and, uh, and I thought, okay, well, I'll, at least I'll get out on the track and it'll be nice. And so I thought, well, I'll I'll uh, I'll message her. So I messaged her and then within a week of leaving the hospital, I was on I was on the athletics track, um, and it. it I remember that day. That day was like it was a turning. It was it was a turning point day. Now. Yeah. Like I got in the car. Yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't really expecting much because I thought I'd turn up and there'd be this like sea of people in wheelchairs and all their carers around and everyone's like everyone's just being really nice to disabled people. But it re- it wasn't that. And it was at that. It was at that point because going from going from an able body being able body to disabled. You don't you don't know the world and you see when you see the world when you like you like mm. you think about the world it's gonna be you think well it's like disabled people they can't do anything for themselves it's it's just it's like a, a lot of this time a lot of this stuff it's uh it's give let's, let's give them something to do to keep them occupied um but then I got I got there and everyone everyone's zooming around the track and they go it's really fast they're overtaking all the runners um. And uh, and I, look, I looked at it, and I, I mean, I was slower than everyone. I was slow, slower, slower than the guys who had broken their necks. But it was still like just a chance for me to, uh, yeah, for me to just be, just be like, be fast and go around. And I, I just could not stop talking when I, when I like when I got into the car. Um, 
and it was at that point that I'd had, I had like the turning, the turning point. Um, but yeah, I'm talking, I'm talking quite a lot. <laughs> no, but that's the point. This podcast is about you, and it's amazing to hear your journey and the transitions with your psychological mindset and how you experienced uh, points of bleakness. But it sounds like from what you're saying, it was never for too long that it became kind of um, your identity, you, you, you made a change and you, you allowed to ha- yourself to have those turning points by reaching out to people and finding yeah. your kind of own helpline, which I think is such an admirable quality that you were able to actually find your own solutions and reach out to that mate of yours who um, was doing the wheelchair, uh, wheelchair racing stuff. It's, it's remarkable, those set of circumstances and also taking your exams as well. Like, wow, I feel like like anyone else's excuses for why they weren't at their exams just they don't hold well, up I, yeah I had, ex- I had exams this year in covid as well so i also i also my second year exams were also done at home so i haven't actually been in university for a final year a friend of your exam yet uh, that is actually so true because co- yeah. <laughs> this was supposed to be like, the year of normality and then <laughs> not quite third year's the charm yeah um and so tell uh, us a bit about oh sorry what were you gonna say i want to hear a bit about um sticking with this theme of your psychological mindset when you decided that you actually wanted to publicly share your journey with friends and strangers as well by creating your instagram account six weeks in bed when did that occur to you that you would actually feel emotionally comfortable to do so um because you were saying you know how it was such a um eye-opening kind of um overwhelming experience when you realized oh I am disabled and I have all these people when did you feel comfortable to share that with those who knew you before so I think it was about two days two days into I've always I've I've never been a particularly private person um but it was about two days in um if you by the way if you ever want to if you ever want to feel like you want to know if people care about you if you want to feel loved break your back because <laughs> I, uh, I, I think I posted something on my Snapchat story and I said, uh, broke my back and I, I, I got 200, I, I got 200 Snapchats, um, yeah. from people asking like, what the hell are you okay? So I, it took me like genuinely, I'm not, and I'm not even exaggerating. It was genuinely 200, 200, mm. um, but anyway, so I posted, but when I, but, but obviously I had, I had so many messages and trying to like, trying to message each and every person being like, yeah, no, this, this is the situation. So basically the, the reason that I started my, my account was purely for my friends and the people who like around me who, um, were just asking me so I can just stop messaging people individually. Yeah. So that was actually, that's actually how it started and why it started. Um, and, uh. I and then it sort of I started I, I, saw, I saw everyone who followed it and I think within within like a couple of days I had, I'd had like 500 600 followers um I think I got yeah I think I got to a thousand in the first week wow. I, was, I was looking at the I was looking at the names and I was like I just don't recognize half of these names um and I think it was at that, it was at that point that I realized that um yeah this journey this journey mm-hmm. that I'm going through the like this what I'm what I'm sharing now um, it's beyond just it's beyond just me. Um, like people, are, people are genuinely interested, and I just thought as, as the kind of things that I was posting at the start was um, 
it was just progress um, and mm. like how how I was doing in each day. Um, and some days like nothing happened and there's nothing to post about. Um, but just and I got a lot of messages from people saying just keep keep going and it was it was really nice. Um, but it was the it was when it was when I started posting about how I was doing and how I was getting through what what I was going what I was getting through and I posted like some some quite like real stuff on there mm. as well about do you know what actually I'm not okay um, and uh, and I think I think people started to people started to um, take from that and, and and apply it to their own lives and it was actually. I think yeah, it was. It took me a while because the word inspiration for me it mm. was at the start it was such a, it, it, and it's such a buzzword. Everyone everyone uses it. Everyone says you're such an inspiration, and for me, I really I really had an issue with it yeah. at the start. Uh, everyone was everyone was saying you're such an inspiration. You're a hero, like, and it, and I thought, what what have I done? All I've done is broken my back. I'm I'm just um, I'm just a, like a normal person who's broken their back. Um, there's nothing special about me and. After after a while, I, I I really had to like sit down and think because it was kind of getting me it was getting me down. I was like, well, I'm just I'm just because I, I just wanted, like I remember that first time, like that first that first actually the first half a year or so, I just I didn't I didn't um it was more that was that was harder for me than actually the ability to not walk. It was this thing. Well, so different, mm. uh, and uh, but then so then I, I really had to sit down and think about well lie down and think about um, what was uh, what 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 do people like why do people think that I'm an inspiration, um, and it wasn't because and I realised it wasn't because I am um, I'm like this superhuman who's really good at something. But it was actually just because I'd had this huge traumatic thing happen mm. to me, and I was just carrying on with life um, and not letting it get me down. And sometimes it's actually just taking the hits and carrying on. That's the most like that's the most inspirational thing mm. of all for some people. And um, and that, and, that, and that's when that's when it sort of like my mindset shifted, and I thought, well, if I if I've gone through this thing, which for me beforehand. And for a lot of people, this kind of, like they couldn't think of anything worse. And I can just carry on, carry on being me, and carry on being the same person. If I can, if I can help people do that, then then that is, then that is what, like, what, 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 else, like, how, how more can I, how more can I bring, like, bring a, like, a positive benefit to yeah. the people around me and the people that follow me. So that was, that was, that was basically the the aim of my um, of my social media um yeah it was just it was just showing how to carry on mm. uh carry on being you in the face of adversity and, and it's not and a lot there's a lot of people that follow me that are um that are in wheelchairs and that are have spinal injuries in themselves but there's also a lot of people that the more people probably that follow me that don't and actually they they connect with me on a different on a different level and mm-hmm. it's not the same it's not the same thing but it is them taking what they want um, from my journey and applying it to their own lives. 
And do you feel like, from what it sounds like, you really saw a ripple effect with, you know, the more you shared and the more you put out, the kind of more people wrote to you and said, this has really helped me, thank you for sharing. And especially coming from you, who, like you've mentioned, you were a prop in rugby, you know, a bit of like a classic kind of rugby guy at uni. And do you feel like that kind of bravado and macho-ness kind of um, dissipated and because you were talking so openly about your mental health and, you know, this traumatic event you'd experienced so openly and emotionally, do you you have any, like, male friends um, start opening up more as a result or anything like that? Yeah, I've definitely... uh, Because before my accident, I was always... always like I've always been quite a, I've always been to want to listen to people and like mm. if they if they wanted to if they wanted to talk I was I was always there I've always been a bit no, a little bit against the like against the norm when it comes to like macho rugby sure. I've always sort of been the guy but also I've I've always just been been like a bit of a joker so nobody re- nobody really um never really came like nobody would really come to me specifically. If they like, had a, had a problem because they just sort of saw me as this as this kind of jokey guy, but then when I started posting about how I'm doing, and people saw this saw saw what's happened to me, and they thought, well, um, like he's been through a lot. That's like it definitely a lot more people have opened opened up to me, and actually also what I've learned from, about life, and I'm like, it's, it feels like I'm a sixty year sixty year old man, yeah, sixty year old man stuck in a in a twenty-year-old body, like that's that's how Wise I feel. Like, <laughs> but like the 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 kind of stuff that I started saying, like within like a few weeks of my accident, I like this was not. I would never have said this. Before. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So I definitely like, and I, I'm a, I'm a I'm a very I'm a keen advocate for talking and mm. um, not bottling things up. And talking to people about, um, and talking to people, and like, and they're and making sure that actually everyone's everyone feels listened to, and everyone has their say about. Mm-hmm. Because a, a lot of the time, I feel that um, the biggest issues with some with some people is the fact that they just keep everything bottled up, yeah. and they just keep it to themselves. You don't have if you don't have that that ear to listen to, and maybe the the occasional word uh, of advice or or a word of encouragement then you you just like you you're not you don't you don't have anything to challenge your thoughts and um you just end up like thinking what you want to think about it um and not have any other any other point of reference yeah um and that can be so dangerous sometimes um but yeah so yeah. I definitely yeah. I definitely and, I, and i'm i'm definitely a, a very keen advocate for um talking against like and I, I can I, and I can see a, a lot of it is also changing now. There's a lot of campaigns, etc. For especially in rugby and. Mm. Um, and I remember the Bristol for... the Bristol sports teams, all the guys sports teams. They there was a, a photography series a while back. I think it was led by a medic even about um, guys opening up about their mental health or wearing sports kit to show. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you yeah. ever see that? Yeah. I was in. I was in. I was in that. Oh, legend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we, 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 we all, all blindfolds and we, uh, oh, wow. we had to like raise our hands and stuff. Brilliant, um, yeah. 
And um, where did you go for support? Because it sounds like, you know, your story has managed to support so many other people with, you know, how fantastically strong-willed you are with your mind, with your mindset and how you kept on going and persevering. So where did you actually look for support? Was it, um, you know, beyond your family and friends? Were there um, people that you found online? I know there was, I read the article about that amazing doctor that reached out to you that was... Um, um, that's also disabled and offered to kind of mentor you. So just tell us a little bit about that. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> bit um, of Afrikaans. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, you, know, you never know if it's Afrikaans or just really mumbled English. <laughs> See, my parents... <laughs> I'm trying to speak very... My parents never taught my brother and I because they wanted to be able to speak a language in front of us and for us not to know what was going on. Uh, so they just speak it all the time. And because my brother and I were born here, they, yeah, they were just like, why, why would we? And then my cousins speak it too. And I'm like, I'm so left out. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a keen up. Share the love. If you can teach people Afrikaans, you gotta, you got to do it. Um, <laughs> do you want to take a break? Uh, sorry. Are you good? Do you want to take a break? No, no, no. Yeah, I just, I just, no, I'm good. I just wanted a glass of water. Okay, awesome. Um, let me, um, what did I ask? Yes, where did you go for your support? Uh, so, well, obviously with my, with my Instagram, um, I didn't just have followers. I had people following, as I also had people that I followed. A lot of people sending me messages. And I remember there was one guy in particular, his name was Olvain, he's from South Africa. Um, and I'm sure he won't mind me, mind me saying this, but I looked at his Instagram. Because for me, like the, my impression like, of disabled people was old, ugly, and uh, just generally a bit useless. <laughs> So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to leave, I'm going to get out, I'm going to be in a wheelchair, I'm going to be old, old, ugly, and useless. But I saw this I saw this guy, and his post, he was posting, like, he was this ripped guy with huge muscles, <laughs> like a very good-looking, very good-looking guy. Um, but he was also in a wheelchair, and, like, and just, like, I think just sharing his journey, and, like, seeing that, for me, from a hospital bed, um... It was, it was, it was, it was one of the turning points and I was, I was spending such a long time fangirling over this one guy who sent me a message being like, just saying, do you know what, it's happened, it's terrible, but you're going to be okay and I can tell you that you're going to be okay. Mm. Um, just seeing that, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a big turning point point. Um, and obviously then seeing, and then speaking to, I met a girl, I met a, I met a woman, uh, she was in a skiing accident. Um, she and she was an anaesthetist at the Coventry Hospital. Mm. She came to visit me, um, and then obviously Tom, Tom Wells came. He was he's an oncologist at, uh, at Western. He was also in a skiing accident, and um, yes, yeah, so meeting these people, I realised that I, like, I I can I can do it. I can be I can be who I who I was meant to be. Uh, like I, I, I'm not skipping straight to sixty. Um, but I'm also like I'm still I can still live my life, um, and that's also something that the sports really helped with. Um, but also the fact that I could carry on carry on with my career, mm. um, and I didn't I wouldn't have to give up like I like I thought I would. Um, and uh, and actually nothing was nothing was over. It was just different, and that word different took a long time to get used to. But now it's actually just now it's just part of 
um, is part of life now. And actually, like it was for me, um, I, I realized because, like I said to you earlier, I just wanted to be normal. I actually like, kind of realized that like nobody was normal. Nobody's normal, mm. um, and everyone. <laughs> Everyone does things differently, whether it's big differences or small differences, but there is no normal. Some people wake up at five o'clock in the morning, some people will wake up at nine o'clock. Some people have cancer, some people don't have cancer. Um, but what is normal for you, you need to just accept the fact that that is your normal. Um, and uh, it's, when I, it's when I realized that this I'm going to be different. But this is my normal for me. And when I got into my routine and I realized this is normal, like mm. this is my new normal. Um, that's when I really started to change my mindset. Um, uh, I remember one time I was, I was with my mum, and we just, like, obviously, it's just, it's very, it's a traumatic thing for me, but the people around me, because they have no, I, because I can control my progress, I can control my body up to a certain extent, um, but the people around me, they can't control anything, they just have to watch and sit by, and actually, I think a lot of the time, it's harder for the people around you to deal with this than it is for you yourself. Um, but I remember I said, uh, one day, like, we just had, me and my mum were crying, and uh, I just said to her, listen, like, listen, tomorrow, that's it. That's it. We're, we're, not, we're done looking in the past. And now, now like, mm-hmm. now, now we look forward to the future. And, like, we look forward to seeing all the cool things that we're going to, that, that, that are going to happen. Um, and now... Like from that day, obviously there was there was a couple of like day, a couple of times I looked back and I was like, oh, it sucks. But since that point, I've I like I, I love I love my life, mm. um, and I love all the uh, all the things that come with it. Obviously, every now and then I have a, I have a couple of times where I'm like, Do you know what? It would be really nice to just get up and walk. But other time, but then but then I realized, you know what? There's so many things that there's so many things that I can be grateful for that I do have, and also I haven't even haven't even mentioned the benefits like the the parking, the uh, <laughs> people get, people get up your way. There's there's basically no queuing. I haven't paid for parking for two years. And it's just <laughs> it's it's a blessing. The only, the only parking I paid for is the parking ticket that I got, which actually kind of adds up to basically the same amount as <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit parking. Um, <laughs> Mm. and honestly 
I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how you must be feeling, but it sucks. But then also, if you can then, so I, so I say, I say it sucks, and then, and then I move on and say, but you know what? Like, like life, life carries on, and depending on depending on how you decide to move forward, you can make something of it. And it's it's a bit of a, it's a for me my personal journey with my mental health and how my, and my physical health. Um, it's all been. It's all been a decision on, and it, it's, it's all been a decision on me. Now I, I can't say I can't say that that it works for everyone because there is each person has their own um, has their own issues and their own and their own ways of dealing with things. But my personal um, my personal journey has been I had to make I had to make a decision that I wanted to make the most of my life and I wanted to be happy. Now. I made a decision to be happy. It doesn't mean that I came naturally. It doesn't mean yeah. it doesn't mean that it was easy. But I had to work, work, work to it by working through what I had to work through and processing what I had to process. But then not dwelling on anything that mm. had been processed. Mm-hmm. And that was and that was the hardest part. Was the and that was the most important part. It was the processing, but not 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 dwelling on it. Um, did you see someone so did you see someone professional um whether it was a cbt therapist or a psychiatrist or psychologist to work through the mental health aspect of it is it part of kind of the package of care from the multidisciplinary team when you have a traumatic accident obviously i've uh, yeah i've not shadowed anything like that on my clinical experience so far but like i did if i said at the start of this i want to do psych so i'm really interested in the mental health aspect how did you actually learn those behaviors of you know positive psychology dismissing what's in the past and really having that change in mindset and kind of resilience to carry on going and look forward to the future as well as practicing gratitude which sounds like something you do regularly and you take stock of your life and like you just told me all about the perks was there a professional that prompted you or have you had this intuitively all along would you say Partly, yes, like I said, it is, it is part of the package deal. Um, so I, when I was on the trauma trauma ward in Coventry, um, I had uh, I had a psychologist, um, and then also when I was at the um, when I was at uh, Street um, and the spinal unit, they also have they also have um, not a psychiatry, but it's it's just like a psychology team working as well. Mm. Um, I didn't I. I was kind of the, the psychologist was kind of forced upon me at the trauma unit, and that was one of the one of the more traumatic experiences that I've had <laughs> for me because it, it was all about um, visualization and thinking back about it and like assigning colors. And for me, that it, it doesn't my brain doesn't work that way. It would just seem a bit airy fairy to me. Right. Um, but some, for some people, it, some people it would work. Um, and then the psychologist, I just, like, and I was just straight, I saw her a couple of times, but I actually referred it to my family, to the family members more, um, because I don't know, I think I, I've just, I've, uh, like you said, I just kind of intuitively had, um, I've, yeah, intuitively had this, uh, the ideas that moving forward, like I knew how I want to, um, knew how I want to do it. My mum's a my mum's a um, a life coach, so that definitely helps. Definitely, uh, um, <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, when it comes, but obviously, you know how you know how it is when your parents suggest something. It, it's yeah, kind of it's grown a little bit. It's still tricky, exactly, <laughs> it's if it's coming from your parents. Uh, 
so acutely because she was also upset acutely I wouldn't say that she didn't help me when when it comes to this sort of thing but actually she helped me more when it comes to when it comes to how she brought me up and how I was actually prepared from the start of my life Mm -hmm. and honestly I don't think if it wasn't for her um, I wouldn't have gotten I wouldn't have gotten through this anywhere near as easily Um, sounds like she's quite the lady quite yeah (laughs) big up your mum she sounds amazing and um, so, yeah, mm. and speaking of um, just going back to your care whilst you were in the hospital, before we move on to the amazing things you've achieved and your love of sports, can you just tell our listeners, especially those who are medics, a bit about all the members of your Marcy disciplinary team and what they did with you, who managed your care, and if there were things that you thought perhaps could be improved upon, and for instance, the language that was used with you, especially in the initial stages when you were told that you were no longer going to be able to walk, was it delivered to you in a compassionate way? All this kind of thing, as you know, lots of people listening, our current doctors or uh, future doctors, were you met with compassion and kindness or whether things you kind of would have wanted to change? So Bristol University and I think at the start of it I, I was it was um it, was, it seemed very airy fairy to me how they 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 told the course but they put a big emphasis on um patient um like just the way that you treat patients in the bedside manner. Mm. Um and I can see how that's it, it's definitely a newer it's definitely a newer thing. Because some of the doctors, especially the older ones that I had, they were, their bedside manner was terrible. Um, they, uh, they, especially the, like the neurosurgeons, the older neurosurgeons, they, they, their bedside manner. Because I think they obviously work in surgery a lot. They, they don't have much. They don't, they don't really need to work with their. Um, and obviously, I'm not generalising. I'm sure and there are there are lovely yeah. neurosurgeons out there, but the ones that I had, um, they really didn't. They didn't know how to interact with patients like I'm I was I was with my friends and they came in like a, a lady came in one time and she just started blabbing on about uh, the fact that I was like she was like yeah no uh, I've looked at your scans and it's pretty obvious like you're not going to get any recovery from this and delivering this bad news like in front of my in front of me and my friends and she like she referred to my my back as like she was like yes yeah, this is a very this is a very impressive break I was like, well, do you know what? It, it looks impressive. It, it looks impressive on a scan, but to me, that this is my life. This is not. Yeah. So there is definitely bedside manner, and I, I think it's one of the things that's actually most that's this has taught me the most about. It's so important, um, and you don't really think about because you, you like before before I was like, well, how I treat a patient is not really going to make a difference as long as I get the diagnosis and as like as long as I can get the treat get a, get them the correct treatment. Um, and obviously, if they if they if they if they're like a little bit upset, then it doesn't matter because do you know what? Yeah, like you've saved them. But the the impact that a good doctor can have and a and a good listening ear can have mm. on your mental health, which basically it's all it's all intertwined and. Exactly. Um, and yeah, the way that you speak to the patients and the way that you are with them, it is, it is fifty percent. It's fifty percent of being of being a doctor, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, so the team that that I worked with, 
Um, obviously, I had the neurosurgeon who performed the spinal fixation, and they removed the, the, the shards from my spinal cord. Um, I had the um, uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it was, yeah, it was a cardiothoracic surgeon who, uh, who put in the chest strain. Um, and so that was the that was the acute stage. Um, and then after that, I just had a neurosurgeon at, at the at the trauma unit look after me for a while. And then when I went to Oswestry, I had a neurologist who was overseeing my like all my care, and that was all the, that was all the aspects of it. So that was um, so that was like the neuro like the full body neuro exam. Um, and um, and then as well as that, you had the um, you had the nurses, and nurses are great. Like yeah. honestly, <laughs> like nurses, I have such a new, like, I have such a newfound respect for for what they do. They they don't like they they, they do all they do all the work for the patient. Um, and uh, and yeah, so like I barely even saw my, I barely saw my doctors, but nurses I see every single day, and they actually like they like they're, they're the same face each day and. They, like they, the reason that I was I was because I was I was almost like traumatized when I had to move from one hospital to the other mm. because I had I had I built up this connection this rapport with these nurses that were performing quite like invasive um quite invasive things each day um, and then I have to like come, like move from one place to another mm. it was uh yeah like they, yeah so that was the nurses the nurses are honestly great and then um. Another part of spinal spinal injury is obviously the bladder and bowel dysfunction because those obviously those are regulated by the, by your uh, by your nerves. Um, so I have a, I had a urologist um, as well, um, and um, then you have other then you have other aspects as more the more the holistic care. Mm-hmm. So I had physios who would help me with the gym um, and the rehab like the rehab. So performing all like the different kinds of transfers. So a lot of it is you have to you have to figure out how to um, live live your life. So move from a chair to a bed, or move yeah. from a chair to a car. So that was that was physios and the occupational therapists kind of that was that, that was their job to try and teach me how to do those things. And actually, they have like a little flat at the at the, at the, at the hospital where they where like you, you can live for a weekend, so you can like figure out how to sure. Um, how to live like how to live independently but basically like i said the ish the, like the going from complete dependence okay going from complete like, independence to dependence it was hard but then figuring out how to become independent again that's when like hope starts to come back in mm. it was and now i like i've, I've lived for myself lived by myself for, like for a year for a year at the university but like completely independent i drive um, I can get, I cook for myself. I do all these things for myself. I just sometimes go back home to do the washing because you're a normal uni <laughs> student at the end of the day. <laughs> Who doesn't do that? <laughs> um, exactly. But all in all, like that, that, that independence is something that I never thought I'd have again. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and it, and it, it, it is something I got back. So, well, it's remarkable that kind of. Um, <laughs> transition you made all you know with a helping supportive team but really all from your own kind of willpower um and I know you went so you took that year out and I know you went to Cape Town to do a special kind of rehabilitation center um and you did some quite extreme things with um this trainer I forget his name so could you just tell our listeners a little bit about that and what kind of regime he had you doing and how that helped you so in in South Africa, there's um, a good friend of mine, and his name is Brandon. 
Um, he was involved in a gymnastics accident and he broke his he broke his neck um, after, when he came off the parallel bars um, and landed on his landed on his head. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so he broke his neck and I was and he was he was told that he'd never get any sort of function back below his below his um, shoulders. So he'd have to. Uh, He'd have to be like dependent on people for the rest of his life, and he actually got, he got quite a bit of function back. Um, and now he looks like a paraplegic uh, rather than a tetraplegic. But anyway, he they started a foundation uh, called Walking with Brandon that offers um, that offers rehab to um, disabled people, um, and not just spinal injuries, like all kinds of disabilities, so like amputees, um, uh, people with stroke, MS, um, and. Uh, and the best thing about it is they are they're a um, they're a charity. So I they're a foundation. So they the money that they the money that they get from profits mm. they reinvest to offer rehab to obviously with the exchange rate being what it is they offer um, rehab for about two like for some people for about two pounds an hour, which especially with in South Africa where the where the 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 poverty rate so mm. high. And the, the thing is with the, with this kind of with disability and with um, accents and accents like this, it can happen to anyone, no matter if you are a billionaire or if you have you don't you don't have two pennies to rub together. It can happen to you. Yeah. So if you're super rich, then like it doesn't like no, no matter how much money you have, you're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna like get your legs back. Yeah. Um, but also it can happen to people who are, so, who are so poor that they can't even afford this kind of rehab. Um, so anyway, so I went, so I went there, and they were based at the sport. At the time, they was based at the Sports Science Institute in South Africa, so it was really top-notch facilities. Yeah. They moved, they moved since, and obviously they've taken all their equipment, so it's still really cool. But there, but there, also we also had access to the high-performance gym, wow. um, where a lot of the um, a lot of the rugby rugby teams, like the top rugby teams, that we all train, and it's right next to the Newland Stadium. Did you meet anyone so, or get to see anyone? You know, I, I, so I'm, I went to a rugby game there and um at Stellenbosch and my um and uh I bumped into Peter Stefford. I didn't recognise he was in the world like yeah, World Rugby Player of the Year. And uh and I thought I recognised him but I didn't I couldn't quite place I couldn't quite place who it was. <laughs> I went over to him and I said, like, like do I know you? And he was like, I don't think so. And he was like no, I was like, I think I think I know who you are. And I was like, do you, like, do I train with you at the gym? And he's like, no, no, we don't, don't train together. And I was like, okay. Well, anyway, lovely to meet you. And then, and then my friend came to me and he was like, Zana, what are you doing? And I was like, I was just talking to this guy. Like, and he was like, like you know, he's the best. He's one of he's one of the best American rugby players of all time. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> myself. <laughs> That's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, but, <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, no, so I, I, so I didn't meet I didn't meet any proper famous people. But like, Sia Khaleesi was the rugby captain. He yeah. Was, he was like training one day with his wife. Amazing. Um, Amazing. All like all all of that. So so really top 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 class facilities. Yeah. Um. But um. I remember the second day because the first day was just measurements and stuff. The second day, and I was, they trained. They worked me so hard. Um. And it felt it just felt so good to get like a sweat on, and actually like be like in the gym hard like for the first time sort of since my accident um and they really pushed me and like the sort of my like they they pushed me beyond 
my disability is that it's actually the hardest it's the hardest that I've worked since like forever like ever and like that was even before my accident so like I was just like each session would end and I felt so close to throwing up um, <laughs> lovely <laughs> yeah and uh but yeah so and then so I went so I went there and I trained and I trained there for four months and it was it was really nice and mm. um Brandon is also he's uh he's got South African colours for wheelchair racing um, mm-hmm. So we trained, we trained as well. We trained together, and that's actually how we became good friends. Because uh, he's never had a training partner before. Because the unfortunate thing about uh, about this, like about Paris sport, is a lot. It's it's so expensive, especially with a country a country like Africa. If you don't have if you don't have the mm-hmm. funds, which a lot which a lot of people don't, then um, then then you just can't you can't do it. And I remember I raced against the guy, and I'm jumping ahead a bit, but. I raced the guy. I raced against the guy there, and he didn't have any gloves. And like he was like racing with his bare hands. And the way the way that you the way that you race is you like you hit the wheel with hit the wheel with your gloves, and like like at high speeds and high. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and he was just gripping. Like he was. I was racing against this guy who was the same. Had the same the same disability as me, but but this guy. And I, I remember I, I was just like I, I took my I took my gloves and I gave it to him, and I thought, well, just, like I just because for me, like it, it was. Yeah. It's expensive. It's expensive, but if it's it's completely it's completely like inaccessible. Yeah. Um, over there. Um, but yeah, yeah. no. So um, so yeah, me me and Brandon trained together for four months on on the sport. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was just like I felt felt so like just alive. Yeah. Do you uh, feel like it really gave you a confidence boost, like yeah. for the first time since? you were with your new normal that you really felt like tough and really able yeah. to be honest yeah yeah and it and it like at the gym it just like i've i've I just gotten it's the best shape that i've been in like ever um obviously my legs my legs are my legs are a bit skinny because i skip skip the leg day but uh but i've more than make up i've more than made up for it with all the other workouts that we did and um mm-hmm. and i each day was a full body workout and it was it was yeah it was um, yeah I've seen the video of you getting up the rope and I was just like oh my gosh you are so strong man <laughs> just using your upper body strength and I'm like looking at, down at my arms I'm like <laughs> yeah no, it, it, they, yeah they, they push they push you hard yeah and so um, let's talk a little bit now about um, your sporting career. Tell us about the opportunities that have come, especially in America, and how you managed to fit it all in with being a medical student. So the, the first week that I took off, um, sorry, the first year that I took off, um, I, like I said, I, I got into wheelchair racing. And, um, and I, was, I, was training with, um, I was training with Carrie, who was the, the world world record holder at the time and um so i just trained i trained with them for the first three months then i went to south african i trained with brandon uh, and at the end i was i was lucky enough to take part in the south african national um south african national like athletics competition for um like the disa- for disabled sport and um i i did that and uh I, it was my first competition ever and I remember I I, uh, I got so nervous and I got to the got to the uh, got to the line. I just couldn't even stay in my lane. I was just like just and of course, but I got to the end of the race. And two minutes later, I'd completely forgotten the entire thing. 
uh, just like the, the adrenaline was pumping and everything was, and I was like working, just, just working so hard. Like I, I actually couldn't even remember actually what what had happened. Um, but anyway, I won that race and I got a gold. Ah, <laughs> first time lucky. Uh, wow. <laughs> That's and, amazing. Uh, I, did, I did four races. I did four races in total, and then I sent them sent them back home to my, my coach. Um, and he told me that he's going to America to train with the um, the USA Paralympic team at University of Illinois, and he was taking Carrie, and he wanted to know if I wanted to come with. So I thought, well, perfect. <laughs> um, and uh, so I had a chance. So, so then I went to um, yeah. So then. Three months later, three months after I came back from South Africa, I went to America and I trained with them. And uh, like it's like it's like the greats and like um, Tatiana McFadden, who's a, like I think she's got something like 10, 10 Olympic medals. Um, just a true like amazing, amazing eraser. Um, and just like meeting all these people that have sort of become like, a very short time have sort of become like the greats, like sort mm-hmm. of my idol. Um, yeah, and just seeing them face to face and training with them and training with them on their regime, and like I just sort of like actually it was at that point that I realised I could I could actually make something of this, um, and I could do and I can do this, and um, but like I just remember saying saying to my mum when I was in South Africa, and I was like I was just actually like I know I want to be a, I know I want to be a doctor, and I know that's I know that's hard work, but I also just really want to do this in my life, and when I was saying earlier about life being, life being, at the start, you're sort of like, hey, well, I'll go to university, get a, career, get a career, get a job, get a family, all those things, and, like, it sort of happens, you just sort of have a preset timeline set for mm-hmm. yourself. I realise, actually, that that's, that that's not what it's about, uh, um, and that, actually, that you can, you can afford to take a year off. So I took a year mm-hmm. off and dropped down to the year below, and it didn't affect me at all, uh, in terms of my in terms of my career and getting back into medicine, um, but what I gain in life experience, what I gain in, in just like life lessons and wisdom, mm-hmm. and yeah, also physical physical and emotional strength, and just being able to deal with deal with whatever life life threw at me, um, that was uh, that was so important. And then, so yeah, so then I um, so the. Exp- that I the experience that I had in America it was it was amazing and um, um, and so I came back then and I trained and I had a couple more races in England um, and I ended up the, the, my, my final race ended up beating, beating all my PBs and within it was my first my first season and within within like at the at the end of the season I'd I'd ranked um, ninth in the UK for the two hundred meters um, wow. which for me, it was like the idea of being ranked in mm. the UK um, in something. It was just, it was, it was just, a, it was a surreal, very surreal feeling. Um, but then university started again, and I remember saying, "Oh, it's fine. I can just carry on with my training, like in university." But it, it sort of started again, and, and actually, like my, like it didn't go so well um, in terms of training. Mm. Like I'd signed up for the athletics club. Um, and I went to went to training, went to the track a couple of times, but I didn't have a coach, um, and I slacked, and I, I think I probably went to the track. In the first few, the first few months, I went a few, uh, I went like about ten times, and then 
and then I just didn't really do it for the rest of the year, and um, because I just I lacked I lacked the structure, um, and uh, and I was I try and, I, and it was it was tough. Like I kind of I kind of put put the first year aside to um, focus on getting back into med school, but it was it was it was hard, and, um, and it was sort of like I felt like I was lacking purpose. But then but then one day uh, I just I saw an advert on Facebook for British rowing, and they they put out like a big um, they put out like a feeler for um, talent, and they have a, like a on their they, they call it the talent ID um, squad. And basically, it's just trials, but they before like but I literally just saw the I just saw the, the Facebook Facebook ad for rowing, and I saw that there's a girl on a wheelchair in it. So I thought, okay, well I, I, I went in, signed myself up, and then afterwards I read actually what what have I just signed up for. <laughs> And uh, I just saw a wheelchair and sports, and I thought, okay, cool, perfect. Uh, but I th- uh, and and I then realised like, I got I got an email back saying like, okay, well, we've just signed up to um, like we've 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 received your application um, for GB trials, <laughs> um, and I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and basically, it turns out that I they that they asked for like my my height and my weight and my age and. And all these things, and they basically I signed myself up for yeah for Team GB rowing trials, um, which I just did not I didn't, didn't realise. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so four weeks later, I was at um, I was at a high performance centre um, in near London, um, and uh, and never I've, I've never rowed before uh, in my life, um, so. <laughs> So it was a, it was, it was an interesting one. I remember saying to my friends, "Okay, well, this is this is what's happened." Um, I've never rode, and they were like, "What? Have you ever rode before?" I said, "No." And they were like, "What? Are you crazy?" <laughs> um, but anyway, so I did it, and uh, it didn't require any previous experience in rowing. And um, I, we finished, we finished the the, the trial, and um, they all said, "Okay, well, take this seat and go home and get a rowing machine." Um, and uh, we'll contact you later. And basically, they they I got I got a place on the on the rowing talent ID ID squad. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> Having never done it before, wow. <laughs> so it was uh, it was it was weird. Were you shocked? Uh, Were you shocked? Or? I was kind of shocked, and I actually, but I really I did really enjoy it. Like, yeah, I really liked, um, and I could. And uh, yeah, I could just I could just see myself doing it. But anyway, like a week later, COVID struck. Um, oh. I, I, so I had to do I had to do my trial earlier than whenever when everyone else is doing this because I can't remember what it was. I think it was because of exams. Um, so I had to do my trial. I had to do my trial about a month earlier. But basically, so I got I got in there. I got my trial in, and then nobody else got their trial done. So uh, <laughs> silver lining, so I, silver lining. I, with COVID. I, kind of finessed, I kind of finessed the system, and uh, so then I was uh, well over COVID. I, I got a rowing machine. I borrowed one from the school. Um, some guy on eBay tried to try to like get me to buy one for like one and a half grand. And, uh, <laughs> and I was just it was, I just couldn't find I couldn't find them anywhere. But my school, um, my old school, let me borrow one. And um, so I, I trained for this like over three months for the three months on um, on the rowing machine, and it was really hard work. Um, I built up from like a one, like a one ten minute session to mm. forty minute, forty minutes just straight rowing. Um, and uh, and yeah, no, and it, like I, 
it just sort of gave me gave me like some sort of um, structure again, which I didn't have before when I was at uni. When I was at uni, and uh, the, the good thing about the rowing is it's it's not it doesn't require much specialist knowledge because rowing is rowing. So um, when I come back to university next next year, I've already been set up with a rowing coach um, because the because the I'm on a centralised program. The one coach that I have, Rob, who looks after me, he's contacted all the coaches for me and gave Amazing. them like, yeah, so get, gave them all the information like about me and um and uh, and it's it's weird. Like I remember the other, it was actually the only the only the other day that I that I, I really realised I had sat back and I looked and I like I was thought about it. I was like, well, I'm I'm on a I'm on a Paralympic like a pathway it's incredible (laughs) and just from you randomly signing up not even knowing what you were doing (laughs) like i like the the end the end goal of this is the paralympics Mm. which is basically the olympics which it blows it blows that is wild that you never even (laughs) set out with that kind of ambition from school days or anything it just happened um but the thing is, and I, it's something that I want, to, I want to say about the Paralympics. Uh, one thing that, because I remember I started racing, and um, I seen like a, like a few months later, people were like, "Oh, are you going to go to the Paralympics then?" I'm like, "Well, I mean, do you own a do you own a bike?" And they're like, "Yeah." And I'm like, "You're going to go to the Olympics?" Yeah. <laughs> so is that kind of and and like for me, I think the the idea that um, if you're disabled and you do sport, you go to the Paralympics yeah. is is it completely like. You do just you do exactly the same amount of work as you would do for the Olympic Games. Um, just the competition, the competition's mm. smaller, but you need to you need if you're not on top of your game, there is someone else who is. Mm. Mm. Uh, and if you wanna if you wanna get if you wanna win if you wanna win those races if you wanna win those medals you need to work just as hard as you would do in mainstream sport. Um, so it isn't, and like I said to you before, it's not some sort of, it's not like a sort of pity party, like let's give the disabled people something to do, it is, it is high performance mm. sport. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that's, and that is, that's, that's for me, that's like, it's, it's such an important thing that actually, um, it's, it, it, it is, it is hard work, um, mm. but if you can do it, you can do it. And when, um, so talking a little bit about stigma and you've just kind of brought it up, when you're kind of faced with comments like that, like that Paralympic comment you just um, expressed, do you, how do you feel? Do you feel, I know you do a lot of advocacy work when it comes to sports um, with people with disabilities. How do you feel you want to approach the situation when someone does say something somewhat stigmatising? Do you feel offended or do you just immediately want to educate, educate? So, uh, my, my personal view, and there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of, accounts and people out there who um will do the complaining and do the like ah oh, someone said this to me that really upset me rah 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 the issue the issue with that in my opinion is that people have this opinion because that is the opinion that is the opinion of 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 the people of the people um i can't get offended because of a comment that someone that someone else has made unless it is made to offend but if it's an if it's an uneducated comment, then it's not it's not it's not offensive because actually they just don't know any better. So 
if I take the time to educate that person, yeah. and I'm more than happy to, and I'm more than happy to do so about this. And people have actually, like most, mostly people have been very like accepting about. Um, actually, do you know what? This is that's not that's not the case. And and I feel like if you if you then if you mm. get offended, but if you get offended by something that someone says, it puts them on the defensive, and then basically people people aren't um, aren't willing to listen. And and that's the same with that's the same for me. That's the same with most with yeah. any kind of hot topic if if you if someone says something and it doesn't stand with your values and then someone and then you go and you quickly say oh no you can't say this that's that's horrible that's really offensive i can't believe you say this then obviously they're, they're not gonna they're not gonna be like okay well please educate me they're gonna just mm-hmm. think okay well, i've done something wrong but i need to i need to defend myself now um so education for me and it, it's it's so, it's so important um and i think just by doing just by doing what i'm doing and being me and being normal and letting people see that i'm just being me i'm just being a normal human being yeah um that is partially that's education enough um so what kind of things can you tell our audience on ways that they can support athletes with disabilities? Um, where What can they do? I know you were mentioning earlier that there is a lack of funding when it comes to equipment, like the gloves, um, and I'm sure lightweight wheelchairs and things like that. Are there organisations and charities that raise funds for the specialised equipment? How, yeah, how does it all work? So there are a lot, there's a lot of charities and a lot of um, uh, yeah a lot of like, funds and stuff out there for people um, and if you can if you can find them you can access them there's there there are quite a few but it's quite hard to unless you have the per, someone to um, tell you where to go yeah it's quite hard to find them because it is quite it's quite niche information um, but I think yeah I think that's what and that's one thing for me that in the future. I kind of want to. I kind of want to look into doing because for me, the sport has been such an in, such an integral part of um, of my recovery and me being who I am today. That actually, I want to find a way to help make sport more accessible. Um, whether that would be through starting a charity or something, uh, but that's long down the line. I, I definitely have way too much on my plate right now. Um, but I think there and there are there, yeah, like I said, there are there are a lot of funds, but. There's not a lot of funds worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, they're obviously centralised in the places with money. It's fragmented, um, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And do you feel like, um, I can't really think of any other than rowing, do you think rowing is quite an equaliser of a sport when it comes to someone like yourself who is paraplegic and, yeah, has the loss of function of his legs that all you need for rowing is your arms? So do you feel like it's a massive equaliser when you're with your teammates who are able-bodied? Like, how do you feel competing in a sport um, with, with, yeah, able-bodied people? Because I feel like I can't really think of any other ones but rowing. Um... Where you're so, all together. So the the nice thing, yeah, like the nice thing about rowing is that we kind of we are we are all together. But if you actually look at all the all the sports, they are based on um, they are based on they are based on like standing sports. So wheelchair racing is based on running. So whether that's sprinting or long distance, so um, sprinting or the marathons, etc. Uh, wheelchair there's there's like wheelchair basketball wheelchair tennis so they're yeah. all they're all loosely based on sports 
one of the nice things, obviously, if you if you see someone in a rowing boat, and if you unless you actually look at look look closely at them, you you wouldn't re- you wouldn't really yeah. see the table. And I remember my mum my mum was walking up and down whilst I was riding one day, and some guy like some guy came over to me and he was like, "Is that your is that your son?" And she was like, "Yeah." Was like he just got out of that wheelchair, and then she he was she was like, "Yeah." And I was like, "What well, is that him now rowing?" And then he was, she was like, "Yeah." And he was like, "How does he do that?" Yeah. Um, so it is. It is quite. It is quite cool. It's one of those sports that you see people doing, and it is. It's universally known to be a very challenging sport yeah, in terms of, of. It's very physically demanding, um, and you can. I can definitely can definitely feel it when I'm when I'm doing the rowing. But also, um, it, it's like a. It's like a props to you. Like you're doing. You're doing this this sport. Whereas like it's not just a, a participation sport. Um, don't really know where I'm going with that. Yeah. No, 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 I see what you're saying. And, I mean, it sounds like with that example you've just given about your mum and that guy that you really challenged his perception on what a disabled person looks like and is is capable of doing in the same way that you said your pre-perception um, before it happened to you was like of a six-year-old guy who was useless, old, ugly. So how do you think we can carry on changing the perception to um, those in society who tend to kind of be a bit short-sighted towards um, disabled people and what they're capable of doing? So you mentioned that interaction your mom had with that guy and how shocked he was to find that you were actually rowing um, like a bit of a boss man, really going for it, but had just come out of a wheelchair and he just was quite stunned by that. And it sounds like from before your accident, you had a very different attitude around what a disabled person's identity is to now, obviously, um, you know, having gone through your traumatic accident and you were saying to me how you thought a disabled person was kind of useless, old, ugly, etc. Nothing like, you know, a ripped, gorgeous man like like your friend Brendan. So um, tell us what you think we can do as a society to kind of work on changing people's perceptions around the capabilities of a disabled person when it comes to sport, when it comes to working in particular industries like the medical industry. How can we really work on becoming more inclusive and um, less judgmental um, about the restrictions that they may have and kind of making more kind of restrictions than there actually are if that makes sense so yeah so there's definitely in my opinion there's two parts to the problem um the first off is society um and their 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 views on um, accessibility and i think um if you if you look at buildings and you look at um how they've changed over the last over the last few years or so it's definitely going in the in the right direction but i think people see um access needs as something that's for um something that's for like disabled people but obviously because it's for disabled people and they don't really stay, like you don't really see them and there aren't that many around then why should they make such a big such a big thing about it but if you make if you make something that is accessible for person in a wheelchair or any or make just make it accessible for disabled people then you're not just you're not just helping um disabled people you're helping everyone because everyone can use everyone can use that if there's a ramp anyone can walk up a ramp anyone can push up a ramp but if there's stairs 
not everyone could never, not everyone could push push upstairs and and if, if some if and I've experienced quite a few times I've wanted to go to a building and I've seen there's just a bunch there's just a bunch of stairs and I can get lifted in and there's, there's there there are adjustments that can be made people can lift me people can take me in but there's the there is a like that going back to that dependence and the the it's kind of taking a, a step back on your dependence and having to actually rely on other people to lift you up um it's and it's also there's very little dignity in that mm-hmm. um sometimes you just have to learn how to learn to, like just to swallow your pride and do what you need to do but, but um definitely i think i think societies society can work work on that um and their opinion on that and there's a lot of a lot, there's a lot of times where a place has been made accessible and you can't see the you can't see the air quotes but they're they're there um but it's not it's just a really steep ramp over some steps which nobody would be able to push up not even mm. the strongest man um and actually like when it comes to when it comes to um making sure that a place a place is made accessible um just doing the doing the correct work and hiring um a consultant, whether that is a disabled consultant themselves, or actually someone who has who has um, like who has like knowledge on the needs and the and the, and the requirements for people um, with with access needs. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the first that's the first opinion. Is like the first the first part is um, yeah, it's just making sure that people realize that, that that it's not just for disabled people and because it's just for disabled people, it's for everyone. Um, and also toilets. Toilets are like it's something it's something that you don't really think about because obviously anyone can use any toilet. But um, toilets are such a such an integral part. Like if I'm if I'm in a building and I can't get to a toilet, then I can't fit. I can't really fit into a, 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 like a, a normal men's toilet. I have to go to the and that's why disabled toilets are, are so necessary. So if I'm now in a building and there isn't a disabled toilet, and that's actually the main the main issue. So I was I remember I was in club in Bristol I won't name which one but I went downstairs because they're all they're all downstairs <laughs> but there wasn't a simple toilet and I was just kind of having to having to like try and maneuver my way into the men's toilet but it's just and it's just and it's not it's it's undignified yeah, um, yeah. and it's a it's a huge deter- deterrent for people mm-hmm. uh, with disabilities to go out and be normal people and like I've been saying I do what do what normal people do, and that leads me on to the second part of the approach. And the second part is reliant on people with disabilities. So, if I wasn't out there and I wasn't doing what I'm doing and being, and I, if I just given up, then there, then society, then society and their opinion of people and disability, you should feel bad for people with disabilities. Then they'd be right, and then there would be no reason to change to mm-hmm. change the stigma. Um, because it's complete, like because then it'll be true. So it's uh, it's important for people like myself who've been put in this position to go out there and show people that it can be done, um, and have a voice so that people can see that actually you know what it can be done. But if 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 it wasn't for if it wasn't for people who are advocate uh, just being advocates, and you don't have to be. I'm not. I'm not a particularly uh, huge disability advocate when I'm. I don't go and I go to rallies, etc. But I'm. But, but just by being myself and carrying on with my life yeah. and doing it on a public forum um, 
or even just doing any, it doesn't even have to be a public forum, it can just be going out into public. Um, by doing that, I'm showing the world that you know what, I, I am, I am who I am, and I can be, and I can be just as independent as, um, as, as you. Um, so, and a lot of people have, um, have that friend who's like, oh yeah, I have a friend who's in a wheelchair, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything because he thinks that life's, his life's over or her life's over. And I've spoken to a lot of people and actually I like, and then they go back and then they'll tell, they'll talk to them. And then I have, I have a few people talking to people like, how do you, how do you do it? Um, and the, the thing is you just have to get out there and it's hard and it sucks sometimes. Um, but it is, it is like if, if, if you don't go out there, then people aren't going to, people aren't going to see you and people aren't going to think actually, do you know what? Maybe I should change my opinion. Cause I know, I know personally that all the people in my life, um, have completely changed their opinion about disabled people and disabled yeah, access. Of course. Think about it purely because I go out there and I'm and I'm still me. Yeah, and how do you balance the kind of um, thing of holding your pride and also knowing when to ask for help? And how do you feel when people take pity on you when you don't take pity on yourself? Like, how do you balance all those kind of things, knowing when? oh, I need to just suck it up and ask for help, um, or, oh, gosh, I wish this person wasn't looking at me in this way. I'm a, I'm a strong dude, like... Yeah. I, I, it was definitely, coming out of hospital, one of, the, one of the hardest things were the looks. And a lot of the time, people actually aren't even looking at you, but you just think that they are. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, um, the, the, it's, a diff, it's a very difficult balance, and depending on you as a person and your disability and the level of ability that you have um you'll have a different level that you need to find so if it comes to a set of stairs i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say okay i'm gonna climb this myself because it's just it's not gonna work (laughs) um so when it comes to stuff that i know that i can't do i will always try to do something myself um if i know if i know if i think that there's a possibility that i'll be able to do it um but the pitying looks—they're always—they're always, they're always going to happen, and you—you um, you kind of sometimes just have to. And the best way to deal with them is to show them that actually there's no need for it. Yeah. Um, whether that is through having a conversation with them, um, and I, I remember like a lot, of, a lot of, a lot of times, like I've I've had conversations. The conversations will go, "Hi, I'm like I'm Xander," and they're like, "Okay, what happened to you?" And I'm like, "I had a, I had, a, I had an accident, broke my back." And then they'll say, like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's cool. It sucks. But actually, do you know what? I'm, I'm fine. I'm going on and <clears throat> living my life. Um, and that's, and that, having that conversation um, and steering it, in the, steering it in a way um, that you can, you can show them that there is no need for pity. Yeah. Uh, that is the best way to, that is the best way to deal with it. Um, and sort of not be shy. Um, I mean, if you're a shy person, then, then, then you can't then you can't help it. But yeah, you should, you should never feel like you should never feel that you can't um, you can't talk about how you act, how you're actually doing, and just accept that. Like if I if I were to just accept, like yeah, I know it does suck, and then and then like, yeah. be like okay, well, and that person's not going to change. That person's not going to change their opinion. They're going to just think okay, cool, well it sucks. And when you first meet someone, um, do you feel like you want to address it straight away because 
you know that people are wondering or do you just go into the conversation um and wait for it to come up like do you know what I mean it's quite an awkward question to ask but you uh, you might have those kind of different situations where someone says like straight away because they're super nosy and interested or or someone's kind of beating around the bush and you're like oh gosh I know you're wondering this is what happens like how like what happens with that it, 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 it's, it's a funny one because like it's actually so it's really interesting to see how different people react and meet yeah. the person for the first time you're always like uh, how are they going to react um, and it's kind of fun sometimes just to mess with people a little bit <laughs> um, but I, I think um, it's definitely and I also like I, I know from like just a lot of forums and stuff people like especially when it comes to like dating and like online dating people like do I post photos of me in the wheelchair Um and I think, I mean, it's not that it's not that it's relevant to the question at all, but it's no, it is though because that's modern life and like being a young yeah. person. That's that's good to bring up, yeah. Um, it is. I think for me, getting from my my personal opinion about the matter is just getting everything out in the open. Um, obviously, not not if someone I wouldn't if someone says to me hi, I wouldn't be like hi, I'm in a wheelchair. Yeah, I'd be like hi, mate. hi, my name is Xander. And then if it comes in, comes into that the conversation naturally, or if you can see that they're wondering, um, because obviously sometimes people are sometimes sometimes people are too too afraid to ask, mm. um, and some, for some people it is a sensitive topic. So some people don't like talking about it. For me, it doesn't matter. And especially with every, with everything that I've said in this in this podcast, that's just, this is just my personal experience there. And some people react completely differently. They might have they might have had a, a particularly traumatic experience. Um, or they might just they might not have the same mindset as myself. But from the way that I the way that I see it is, I've I've got into taxis and the taxi driver straight straight away would be like, okay, so what happened to you? Or uh, but I'll have a conversation within like like an hour later. Um, it just I remember I was I was on the phone with my with my girlfriend's friend uh, for the first time. We had like a ten minute conversation, and then the girl was and she never met me she'd never met me before. Um, and she was like, okay, what's your Facebook? I'll add you. And I told her my name. And then they was just went silent for like 20 seconds. And she was like, are you disabled? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah I, I am. She was like, wow. And I was like, yeah. She was like, so, so what happened? What? Because <laughs> obviously my, my, my profile picture is me in a wheelchair. But obviously if you talk to me just on the phone. Yeah, yeah, obviously. You wouldn't, you yeah. wouldn't know it at all. Um, but yeah, so people, yeah, people's reactions are funny. Um, you just feel like but, you have to have a thick skin and just like go yeah. with it um it's very difficult if you don't have a thick yeah. skin if you can't if you can't you can't roll and and it's like yeah like i said it's it's not about whether people it's not pe- people don't try to be mean i mean i've had a couple of people like just shout abuse at me before but that's just because some people are idiots um but in general people don't try to be people don't try to be mean um they just yeah. They just don't know how to react, and if you teach them how to, then the next person that they meet, they'll they'll know better. But if you if you like if you get offended because someone says something someone says something wrong, then they're not going to learn. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but have you had any experience in the clinical environment just yet? Have you gone into hospitals? Yes, yeah, so we every two weeks we would be in. I'd be at Southmead Hospital. It's actually, every four weeks I'd be at Southmead Hospital. Every um, Every other week, I'd go to the GP, but we've had we've had clinical clinical experience. Okay, yeah. fine. Because we have obviously we're in different curriculums, 
Um, So how do you feel it's been being someone in a wheelchair in the hospital and learning as a future doctor? How do you feel like it's been received? Are there things you wish, um, you you know, horrible experiences you wish you hadn't had and people who would have been more kind of um, inclusive and less maybe patronising? I don't know, I'm just kind of wondering what the experience has been like. Yeah, so my experience has been, it's, sort, it's been a, like a very positive one. The university has been very good at... Um, Dealing with dealing with whatever it needs to be, uh, with, with, with whatever it needs to be dealt with. Um, the training that I've got has been exactly the same training as the rest of my cohort. Um, in terms of this is what you do, this is what you do, because the, the, the whole thing isn't different. the The issue is then with the adaptations, and the adaptations are something that I that I need to figure out myself because it's, there is no prescriptive guide, guideline because a they're like no 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 two disabilities exactly the same, and B, I mean there just isn't it's not like being a being a being a doctor in a wheelchair is not a, it's not a, it's not really a done thing. Um, so there's not really been that much that many people that have spoken about it have spoken about it. Um, which is actually another another thing that I've been thinking about working on is actually documenting all the yeah. adaptations that I have made. Um, just because I've spoken to, I know I've spoken to people before and universities. Like they're more than happy to learn, but um, but a lot of the time they've they've discouraged people from in wheelchairs from applying for medicine uh, because it seems like how would you do it and like it just seems a doctor in a wheelchair sounds sounds weird. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I mean I've had some I've had some uh, interesting experiences. But one of the issues is being in it. Well, with having a spinal injury is um, your balance is affected, and my balance is pretty good. But when it comes to leaning forwards, my lean back isn't so great. So I remember I was, I was doing a, a, a respiratory exam once, and the guy had his shirt off, and uh, I was leaning forwards to listen to his chest, and I just headbutted him straight into his chest and I him. And it was just, it was this old man, and it was <laughs> I'm so glad it wasn't a woman, and you'd, like, opened her shirt, and you'd gone face uh, into her, like, boobs or something. <laughs> oh, God. It was one of those ones where I just I just didn't want to be there. Um, yeah, that that <laughs> is a bit of a shocker. I can't lie to you. <laughs> um, but it, then you like you learn and you 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 move on. But patients in general, have they been? Yeah, because that's they have, that's they a different been, ball game. Mm. They have been pretty like all in all, they patients generally have this idea that doctors are this like super being that knows everything is going to make you better uh, medical students are basically just like mini doctors in their eyes um and they so they they kind of see me i come in and i'm saying i introduce myself a medical student and they and I, honestly like most all the time like all the patients i've had so far i will like I'll, i've had a few that i can just go in and go out and they're actually like they have nothing that is drawing anything up um i've had a few that have asked me about it like at the end but all in all, I think they're just happy to be seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. No matter if I'm in a wheelchair or not, um, it's more actually the 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 colleagues um, yeah. that have not have the issue, but that have more of a like a, like a thing about it. Um, like what kind of thing? Your medical student colleagues or more your seniors? Um... I think I think it's more. I mean, it's more yeah, more the seniors and mm. like more the 
general people in medicine are like, well, how, how are you going to do it? And I'm like, I think it's more a, a place of worry rather than like, a, I don't think you should be doing it. Yeah. Um, but it's still like, it's, it, it, like I said, the patients are just happy to be seen. Whereas, um, yeah, which is, which is nice. And I, I can actually, I, could, I bring it into, I think use it actually as a tool to talk to patients. Like we had a, we had an actor training the other day and I had to tell a guy that he had epilepsy. Um, and obviously with epilepsy, you know, spinal injury is two different things, but, um, with, with, I, with what I brought in and what I said to you earlier about the new normal, I was able to bring in, bring this into my consultation with him and I could see that he was quite upset, but obviously she's an actor, but still, mm. it's still about learning. Um, and I could, I could just bring in this, these like wisdoms that I've, that I've learned. Yeah. And so I said to him, like, what I said to him. Um, do you know what? It's it's tough and it sucks, but you, you figure out a new normal. Um, and I could basically I just drew on my personal experience, and I was able to impart it on this on this patient. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, and I think it's it's definitely more of a tool. And um, I I definitely think that there is so much more scope and place for disability in medicine. Um, that is something I definitely want to. I definitely want to campaign for. And there's so many things that actually, uh, I don't have. A, I don't have enough time in my life to to do all the things that I want, uh, which is quite. It's just exciting because obviously yeah. I didn't have it before. Um, but there's so much. There's mm. so much stuff uh, like like that. It just excites me um, to actually be able to to be able to work, work on this kind of stuff. So, but I think med- disability in medicine is it's only a, it's only a good thing. Um, we're moving away from this doctor knows best, doctor yeah. this whole, whole um, it's this superhuman, superhuman to a more um, team team based view where you work with the patient to come to to decide your treatment. And because of that, um, if your doctor has more insight to being a patient um, and to being on the other side, uh, mm. on the other side, you can work together. Because um, I mean. My my uh, knowledge will be just as good as as the guy next to me, but my the experience that I've had about totally. being on that side it's so much more than, than the guy than the, than the than my than my colleagues will be. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's truly special that you're able to be so human and actually level with the patient and move away from that patriarchal kind of doctor patient relationship and like you say, like have that shared partnership where you're able to yeah. talk about your hardship but also kind of give some pearls of wisdom to the patient, even if it's slightly different, you know, what they're experiencing, but it's still an obstacle to overcome. And um, I think it's amazing that you want to campaign for it because I agree with you, you know, if medical schools can make the kind of adaptations, why can't more people with disability apply for medicine and not be deterred from, um, you know, applying in the first place? Exactly. And uh, Yeah, it's just, and there's very, and there's very few, in it, and they, we, we all have a little, like, we all kind of know everyone else around, but that shouldn't be the case. It should be, there should be at least one person in a year who has some sort of insight, in my opinion, and it's just like it's, or even more. Um, yeah. Yeah. You can cut all that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I get you. And so, do you think we're taught enough uh, around disability in our medical education? 
I, I think because I, I can only speak about my my tra- my um my teaching at Bristol. Um, we have we have training once a year called three uh, D days, uh, which teaches about diversity, um, disadvantage, and disability. Um, and we talk about that, and I think I, I, I think personally that is enough. Um, that is enough to get the ball rolling. Um, because a lot of a lot of it is personal learning through your own personal experiences. So you can't really, I can't teach an entire year how to teach how to treat disabled people because I only I'm I'm only one person. Um, I'm only one person, and I and I the way that I like to be I like to be treated is completely different to the per, to the person the, like another, a, a different mm, person in the yeah. same situation. Um, so I think if you give if you give someone the tools to figure out figure out themselves then that is all that's all that's needed because I remember in my first year obviously we had a different um curriculum but we had a module called society and health and we did a um lecture around models of disability and we learned about the medical model of disability versus the social model so the medical model being um, disability is the problem of the person it's directly caused by their disease or impairment and it kind of regards the problem as requiring medical care in the form of indi- individual treatment by professionals so overall it's the problem of the person whereas the social model is um, you know it views disability as created by society rather than a condition of individuals so people are only disabled by the physical or organizational barriers of society um, like you were saying you know if there is no ramp um, um, in public buildings and no disabled toilets and things like that so I just wanted to kind of get your take on that and what you like what you think is kind of like is it a blend of the two or what kind of views do you have on that well my my I'm definitely more leaning towards the social uh, social view um, because I know that I've done I've done all the work that I can do, and I know that my my medical team have also done all the work that they can do to get me to this level. And I know that if I know that if society were to accept, if there was to be more change in terms of access, accessibility, that I would be able to do exactly what the, what the next person would be able to. Yeah, do. yeah. Um, and so I, I I think that we there is there is more of a shift um towards the social the, the social model. But I don't think I don't think disability is actually a problem that needs because I think a lot of people think that disability is a, is this big problem that needs to be fixed. Um, but there's always going to be yeah. there's always going to be this disability, um, whether it is social, whether it is physical, mental. There's always going to be um, a degree like you can't have a perfectly healthy um, society. So how and then, and you can and there's a saying where you say you can, you can judge a society based on how they treat its most um, uh, vulnerable vulnerable members yeah, yeah vulnerable members um, and it, it, I think it's it's really true because it's it it's really like it's it's it I have the ability to do whatever whatever I want. It's but it's not me that is stopping me from doing that. It's, mm, mm. it's society, um, and for me to live a fulfilled life, it's um, yeah, it, it's not it's not me that's stopping me from doing it. Completely, 
And um, we're just going to start to wrap up one of my final questions um, in terms of educating others. Are there any issues you personally find with language around disability that you think could be worked on? So, for instance, do you find any issue with saying, you know, using it as the adjective versus the noun, like a disabled person versus a person with a disability? Because I know people talk about it, in t- like I've even heard dietitians talk about it, that their diabetic patients prefer being like being told that they're a patient with diabetes rather than a diabetic patient because of the way it makes their identity feel and whatnot I was just wondering what your kind of view is on the language yes I, I, I definitely like I mean and it's and like it's, it's not an issue of it's not an issue of um I'm a per- it's like it's not an offence if someone says I'm a disabled person. I definitely prefer a person with disability because it is. You're a person first. Yeah, I'm yes. a person first. Uh, but if someone, if someone, it's not, it's not offensive if someone calls me a disabled person because that is also what I, what I am. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely think that language and language does evolve as more people become as as as, as time goes on and more people are speak out about how they feel about it. Um, but I think it is a natural progression for me. That's not so much of a big issue. Mm-hmm. No, fair enough. And I think that does come down to the individual as well, for sure. And I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm also not particularly, uh, I'm not particularly PC when it comes to language by myself either. It's so. <laughs> <laughs> probably the best way to be, to be honest, yeah, exactly. taking the piss. So Zander, you've given so many pearls of wisdom today with telling our listeners about um, how you've learned to be more resilient and have this mindset that allows you to just keep going. Could you just give a few more tips and perhaps um, give us an insight into, you know, what you do for your own self-care to nourish your mind to our uh, listeners? Yes. Um, well, I th- when I've, yeah, one of, one of the main things that I feel when dealing with adversity um, is that you need to just deal with the issues day by day. Um, take each take each issue when it as, as it comes, and don't look too much forward. If you're if you're stuck with a situation where you don't know what's going to happen, deal with each problem as it comes. And um, if the, if a day by day is too long, if the day is too long, deal with it hour by hour. And if the hour is too long, deal with it by minute, because once you get through that minute, once you get through that hour, that is not that is an hour that you have succeeded and you've and you've done it, and it's not going to happen again. Um, that suffering, you're not going you're not going to go through it again. That's done. Um, and once you've done that, then you can then you can look forward. And once once you start to learn how to deal with the the seconds, the minutes, the hours, and you can start dealing with the days, and then when you get out of the days, you can get you can work on months and. And then, as time goes on, you can start looking forward to, you actually realise, you look back, and you're like, okay, well, I'm out of that situation now, I can start looking forward to planning to the, planning to the future. But definitely dealing with the situation, especially if you're in an acute, if you're in acute adversity, um, dealing with it as, as it comes is, is necessary. And then the final thing that I'd say is realising, and one of the things you need to realise is you can't change your circumstances by wanting it. By wanting it. Um, you can't if you're in a situation um, and you want to get out of it. There's no point in saying I want to. I want to be out of this. Like I remember saying a lot, a, a, quite a few times that 
I just I want to use my legs. I want to be able to walk. And uh, no matter how much I said that, nothing was coming back. Nothing was, nothing was, uh, yeah, nothing was getting better. And uh, my my mum's friend, she had cancer, and I, and uh, I was thinking about it. I was like, well, if she just said to me like, I don't want cancer, like, great. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm. You just got to you got to suck it up. You got to do your chemo. You got to do with the treatment, whatever. But you can't just because you have a, you have a situation, you can't will yourself will yourself out of it by not wanting it. And once you make that make that shift in your mindset and realize that this is the situation that you're, that you're stuck with, then you can start working on how do I make the most of it and how yeah. do I get through. So acceptance, really. Accepting it, yeah, mm. and um, and dealing with the situation that you have rather than dealing with what you would rather it be. Sure. And in terms of any exciting future plans, um, any races, I know COVID's probably been quite <laughs> annoying for any sort of sports, <laughs> but any any future plans when it comes to um, all your sporting stuff? Yeah, no, COVID's kind of ruined everything. <laughs> um, there's, there's not really been any races uh, on the track or uh, regattas on the water this um, this summer, yeah. so next, hopefully next summer, next summer will be my first regatta season, I don't actually know what it's called yet, <laughs> um, but my first boat race next, next season, and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll watch this space, we'll see, we'll see where it takes us. Amazing, and where can our <laughs> listeners keep, um, keep up to date with you? So I run a blog on Instagram called Six Weeks in Bed with underscores between all of the words. Um, but if you type in Xander, um, find a poll, you'll probably find it on there as well. Um, it's the one with the it's, it's the one with the with the crap uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll put it in the show notes. There we go. I'll put it in the show notes. And yeah, um, just thank. No, no, no. I'll I'll set I'll set. Okay, you want to go? Okay. Yeah, so I run a blog on Instagram called uh, Six Weeks in Bed um, with underscores between all the words. And uh, yeah, if you type in, or if you type in Xander, I'm sure it will come up as well. Cool, and you've got some exciting new material coming. So everyone stay tuned and yeah. yeah, keep your eyes out. So thank you so much. It's honestly been amazing talking to you today and listening to your story and amazing that you're a fellow South African and Bristol student. So... <laughs> hopefully get to see you around bristol and yeah hope you enjoy the rest of summer with what we've got left of it (laughs) thank you yeah you too wow another wonderful guest stay tuned for new episodes on nutritank's nourish your mind podcast nutritank is an award-winning innovative information hub for food nutrition and lifestyle medicine with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now. Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice So please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you.